You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. We've got some folks that left today. Uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, Oh gosh, maybe even longer than that. Maybe maybe as long as a month ago, my friend uh, Cairo from Nicaragua was here. He was one of our translators for when we go down there and uh, get to teach at, at this place called uh, Ometepe Island, which is an island in the middle of a huge lake. But we go down there. One of the things that we get to do as a church is we've partnered uh, with this ministry that that sets us up to be able to go down and we do. Um, pastor and church leader training um, about two to three times a year. And so we have a group that let, and it's not just the pastors of Bethel that go and do that. It's, um, it's open to, to everybody. And so we've got four guys that left this morning to head down there, and they're teaching this week on, uh, I think it's the second part of the Bible study methods. And so they'll have anywhere from 50 to 80 to uh, maybe even more uh, pastors who have no opportunity for any other training, and so they're there uh, this week to um, to give their lives away for uh, for the sake of the of the kingdom. And so we want to pray uh, for that group, and I'll I'll pray for them here in just a moment. And uh, so secondly, it, it, by way of just announcement, if you are here this morning and you um, you know, you've been visiting, you've been hanging around Bethel, and, and you're not in a life group, or maybe you've been here for 10 years, and so I'm not in a life group. Um, I don't, I don't want to just talk about that every now and then. I want to uh, make sure you know that there are continuing opportunities for you to connect and plug into life groups. And one of those is that on Sunday mornings, um, the Waters, Adam and April Waters, have begun a new life group on Sunday mornings, and it's a, during the 9.30 hour, during this hour, so... Um, but they've already started, so don't go today. But, but if you want, if, you, if you're not in a life group, you say, man, I'd love to be in a life group. I'd like to get connected. It never seems convenient. Well, you can start next week. You can show up, come to their, their group there in the, over on the second floor of the education building, C104, and um, it's open to you. You are invited to come. And so whether that's where you stay for a long time or uh, you just go and, and get plugged in, and they help you figure out uh, where to go from there. That's what they're going to be doing. So that's um, on 9.30, at 9.30, uh, over in the other building, and would love for you to, to check that out. All right. So we are uh, studying the parables. This is actually the sixth week of our parable study, and uh, we looked the first few weeks at Matthew uh, chapter 13, which is the parable chapter in Matthew's gospel. And um, then we uh, looked at, um, we've looked at Luke, and last week we looked at the parable of the prodigal son, which I said last week is probably the most famous parable. It would probably, as far as famous parables go, be tied with the parable that we're looking at this morning, and that is uh, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. And so, if you have grown up in church or uh, have ever been to a church, or particularly a children's Sunday school class, or it is a great image, it's a great picture that Jesus tells that even 2,000 years later um, 
is relevant and uh, penetrating to our uh, hearts and our minds and our culture. And so we um, are going to read this, it's Luke chapter 10, and actually it begins in verse uh, 25, and it goes to verse 37. And so I'm going to read the parable. And uh, as I read it, this very familiar parable, uh, would you listen with, with fresh eyes and a fresh heart this morning as we look at what Jesus had to say to this lawyer that comes to, to question him about uh, eternal life? In Luke chapter 10, beginning verse 25, it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, well, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, Well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bound up his wounds, uh, pouring on oil and, and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he went out, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Well, he said, the, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, that's the word of the Lord this morning. Let me... Pray for our time as we uh, seek to hear from God. Father, we do ask that you would um, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, uh, that we can see um, the truth uh, that Jesus is teaching in the midst of this prayer, in the midst of this story, as he gives us a glimpse of the kingdom in, in everyday story, in everyday language, but Father, would it would you, by your power, work in our hearts this morning? Father, I pray for that same power this morning for the, for the guys that left in Nicaragua. Would you bless their um, time? Would you, would you um, give them uh, courage and clarity? And Father, would you prepare the pastors and, and leaders uh, to hear what it is that you would have for them, for the good of the church in Nicaragua, and Father, to your glory. So that's what we ask. We, we ask this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. 
Well, the story is, is familiar, and that's what makes some of it difficult to teach, is there's some of the, ease, some of the most well-known passages, most beloved passages. Honestly, I'll let you in on a secret, are really some of the hardest uh, to preach. They're hard to preach because we're so familiar with them. They're hard to study because we're so familiar with them. We, we, we think we know, and, and maybe we do, what, what the end of the story is, what the, what the lesson is, what the takeaway is before we've even set our eyes on it. And so this morning, I want to um, take a step back, and I want to, to walk through the story, but then I also want to walk through some implications that I think are going on in the story. Well, the story begins in verse 25, and we're introduced to a lawyer. And you have to know that a lawyer in the first century is different um, in many ways from a lawyer in the 21st century. So um, this was a man whose, whose study of the law, whose devotion to the law, was actually the law of God. You can think of this more like someone who's a theologian or maybe a seminary professor. And, and their role, these lawyers, um, some of them, many of them were Pharisees, uh, the, their office among the people was to teach and to expound the Scriptures, to, to teach what God's Word said and to explain what its meaning was. And so, um, Jesus will increasingly become harassed. He'll increasingly become questioned. He'll uh, increasingly fall out of favor with those that are the religious leaders of his day. And so, here we see a glimpse of this man, and he comes and he puts this question before Jesus. And the way the text says it is, is it's a test. It's, um, he, he's testing Jesus. And that word in the New Testament can have a positive uh, meaning. It can have a negative meaning. This one very definitely has a negative meaning. That he's, he's come in his presumption. He's, he's come in his pretense to put Jesus to the test. You can think about him as, as kind of like he's come to put Jesus on trial. He, he's, he's tempting him to say the wrong thing. He's trying to trap him. The word about Jesus is, is that somehow, it's been getting out, that he He's teaching something different than the law, which Jesus will answer repeatedly, I am not. I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus is going to turn around and say, to, to, um, in this experience with this man, to, to help this man see, to reveal in this man's heart that he does not know the law like he thinks he knows the law. So the man asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So in the other accounts, in the other Gospels, the question comes to Jesus is, what's, well, what's the greatest commandment? Well, that, that answer Jesus will give. The greatest commandment, I'll tell you what the greatest commandment is. The greatest commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. Here the man comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I do so that when the resurrection at the end come, I'm part of, I'm, I'm resurrected with the righteous at the end of the day? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus He's not going to answer the question for the man. He's going to let the man answer his own question. And he says, well, what, what does the law say? What does the Bible say, and how do you read it? See, I think the lawyer, what he's doing, this, this, this religious 
person. Is what he's wanting is he's wanting Jesus to, to expose the right to, to give the right right answer. He really probably wants him to give the wrong answer, so that Jesus can be trapped. Whatever the wrong answer he concludes would be. But I think there's something else going on underneath. I think what the lawyer's seeking is is when they talked about eternal life, when they talked about the resurrection, they talked in terms of technical assurance. How can I be technically assured that when the resurrection happens, I'll be resurrected with with the righteous in the end? Well, what must I do to share in the resurrection of, of those people that this, so Daniel says, we, we know the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, we looked at it last week, everyone's going to be resurrected, some that are to, to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. I, I want to be a part of the righteous. Technically, what do I need to do to be raised with the righteous? Maybe that he's seeking less an answer, like I said, but more of a trap. So Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? How do you read it? How, maybe how do you interpret it? So what the man does is he gives the answer, the good religious answer, the Sunday school answer. So Jesus isn't the Sunday school answer yet at this time because, well, he's just come on the scene. But they did have a Sunday school answer. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6, and then you go over and, and, and there, then there's a little bit they would throw on there from Leviticus 19, and that kind of summed up the spirit of the whole law. And the Deuteronomy 6, it's called the Shema. You, you teach it to your children and your children's children, and you do it when you're, when you're, when you're you know, going throughout the day. You, you do it in formal ways, you do it in informal ways, all the time. Deuteronomy 6 says you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Then you go over to Leviticus and it says, hey, listen, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus will answer him and say, well, you're right. That's good. Do this and you'll, and you'll live. In some ways, what he, I think he's saying to the to, to the lawyers, hey, listen, you, you need to love perfectly, and, and you'll get to heaven. Perfect love, you'll get to heaven. Love perfectly, you'll be saved. Love perfectly, God will accept you. So go ahead and do that. Well, I would say this, trying to obey the commandment to love God, or trying to obey any commandment for that matter, is something very different than actually loving God. Seeking to obey the commandment to love God and actually loving God are really things that can be very different. In in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is rehearsing for a generation that has grown up in the wilderness, and they're going to be the ones that get to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6 is Moses recounting the history. He's giving them a charge. He's looking forward, and he's telling them in Deuteronomy 6, hey, listen, this kind of sums up the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Love him. And he's going to go on, and he's going to lay out to him, okay, these, you know, these, this is part of what it means to love God, and this is how you obey him, and when we go into the promised land, this is how we're going to be set apart and holy as his people. 
And yet you get to Deuteronomy 28 and so, and if you do that, you'll be blessed. And it gives them a few verses on being blessed. But if you don't do that, there are these curses that are going to come upon you. And the curses are three times as long as the blessings. Because Moses knows these people, and he for sure knows their parents. And the reality is that the law is given. It, it is the standard. It's the high standard. You, but, you, but you won't live up to it. So that's Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 29, he's going to even recount it. Listen, you've even seen some great things. You've seen some great things. You've heard some great things. You know all the wondrous works God's done in bringing us out of Egypt and, and parting the Red Sea and conquering Pharaoh. And, and then we've lived in the wilderness all this time. And man, our shoes haven't worn out and we've never missed a meal. And God has done miraculous things and you've seen it all, but you don't understand it. The law before you is the holy standard. It is God's requirement, but you can't do it. God's going to say to them, you can't do it, but it is something I'm going to do in you. Because in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, after all of this, in chapter 6, we're given, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, 24 chapters later, what you see is that God comes and says, hey, listen, after you've failed and after you've blown it, and after you realize how holy I am and that you can never live up to that holiness, I'm going to do something in you. And that is I'm going to circumcise your heart so that you love me with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. See, it's, it's something you, you have to do. It is the standard, but you can't do it. I'm actually going to do it in you. You, you need a, a heart change. Because, see, obedience, for the sake of obedience, you can keep the commandments without being loving. Obedience doesn't lead to love. Faith leads to love. Faith leads to love, which leads you into obedience, and you, you love without a commandment to love then. So see, there's this inherent problem in the lawyer's question. It's a focus on the technicality of the law. It focuses on technically um, the, the law. Listen, it, how, what does the law say? What do I technically have to do? But a focus on the technicality of the law, in a way, it, what you're doing is, is you're seeking to diminish the standard that is set forth. It is a focus on what is the absolute minimum requirement. To, to focus on what is minimally required is in itself a rejection of the law. See, the, the law, it demands everything. There's no minimums. The law demands maximum everything. But the law doesn't save. It does, however, expose its subject to the need of salvation. So the question of the Pharisee implies that that what he believes, this, this lawyer believes, is that he can fill, fulfill the law. 
He can achieve salvation. To be resurrected with the righteous at the end is something that he can win. He is something he can achieve. It's something that he can secure by what it is that he does. And yet there's no uh, security for him. I think what you see is there is insecurity and there is anxiety that comes from the lawyer's position. The insecurity is, listen, one's hands are betrayed by their heart. Your hands are betrayed by your heart. The outward demonstration of obedience to the law is betrayed by an inward experience that you're not living up to the law. That the insecurity in the statement that the, 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 the statement creates that, that man looks on outward appearance, but God looks on the heart is terrifying. See, a hope placed in technicalities will never quiet the doubt that's whispered by the heart. It'll never do it. This was the great thread of Jesus' ministry. His presence. It was like an earthquake that was shaking the loose, the foundation. That all that mattered was outward appearance. See, the religious people of the day, they were using the law like, like spray paint to cover over and hide rotting wood. Many people use the goodness of the law to cover over the badness of their hearts. Jesus will say in a few places, just listen to this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside might also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's Matthew 23. In Luke 11, after this, he'll say the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisee, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You're a fool. In Luke 20, he'll say, Beware of the scribes. Beware of them. That they like to walk around in long robes, and they love greetings in the marketplace, and in the best seats in the synagogues, and in the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses. And for pretense, they make long prayers. They'll receive greater condemnation. There is this great insecurity that comes. When we begin to ask questions like, okay, well, technically, what is it that I have to do? Look, I, I get all the other religious stuff. I get the holiness. I get, listen, I get all that. Just bottom line me. What do I have to do here? There's a great insecurity. There's not only insecurity, there's great anxiety that comes with that. So while on the one hand, the lawyer's question's a trap, it reveals the question that's hanging in the air of his day. And you know what's hanging in the air of our day, too? What must I do to be saved? To, to inherit eternal life, to, to be resurrected 
with the righteous. I mean, how can you really know? How could you really be sure? And there is an anxiety that this hypocrisy brings. And hypocrisy is this Greek word. I mean, you know, you've heard this in a sermon somewhere. I mean, it's, it's, it's the word they use to, to talk about acting in a play. I mean, it means to, to act the part in a play, uh, uh, hoping that it's convincing and compelling enough. So at the end of the play, you receive a standing ovation. And did you play the part well enough to be believed? See, the best you can hope for at the end of the day, at the end, with the law, that you perform well enough for God to believe you. That's the goal, right? Did you perform well enough that God believes you and that you would receive his ovation? See, that's that's the problem. The gospel says, no, you can't. The one who receives the ovation is God's son. It is not whether God believes you. The issue is, do you believe the Son? Do you believe in Him? See, the only hope for anxiety to be relieved, for assurance to be gained, is to understand that Jesus performed perfectly. He receives the ovation from God. Jesus' role as the Savior, His His embodiment as our Savior and our Redeemer, He's not an actor playing a part. Jesus is truly Himself. There's a guy named Weissman. He he writes about creativity in theater, and he describes actors this way. He says, they have an excessive inner need uh, for and urgent or urgent, insatiable gratifications from exhibiting themselves. They're desperate not to show who they really are. Because these actors have failed to develop a normal sense of identity, he asserts that the actors' roles give them repeated opportunities to temporarily secure a self-image. Essentially, though, there is a psychological point of view This is the actors are in search of an identity that they can become due to an inadequate sense of their own personal identities. That's what we do when we act out the part of Christianity, which is vastly different than being a Christian. Startling. One guy says this, the paradox of the actor begins to approach the part of the, it's the actor's challenge. To appear real, the actor must be artificial. That's the, that's the danger. To appear real, you've got to be artificial. Can't let anybody see what's going on inside. Well, verse 29 you, you see, so after he answers, and Jesus says, great, it's a, 
that's a great answer. But verse 29 is very revealing. The narrator helps us here. He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Did the word justify means to to make right with something, to, to become right with someone. The law can tell you what love is, but it can't make you loving. It can tell you what right is, but it has no power to make you right. The law has to expose you. It, it's what it does. It exposes you. It reveals you. It convicts you. It condemns you. It, you know what? The law puts you to death. It exposes about you that you're not loving. Did you know this? In and of yourself, you're not loving. You can't justify yourself with love or with anything else. You can't be made right by loving. You can't do it. Your love is flawed. And if you don't think so, just ask the people around you. You can only truly love, not out of obedience. You can only truly love when you know the depth of your inability to love. And then to see and to know how, even in the midst of that, you are loved. To know that you don't get to God by love, God comes to you with His love. John will write in 1 John 4, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The, the Bible comes to put you to death so that it can then bring you back to life, new. It can circumcise your heart. Well, so the guy asks, who's my neighbor? This is the great technicality. In that day, there were lots of debates going on about who your neighbor actually was. Is it my family? Is it my tribe? Is it my kinsmen? Is it my fellow covenant people? Well, what exactly does it say? Leviticus 18, uh, 19, 18 seems to say, uh, it's just my family, just those people who are the people of God. That's, that's really all I'm responsible to love. But then it says in verse 34, well, Leviticus 19, 34, even the people that sojourn, even the people that just sort of come through and wander in your life, well, you've got to love them too. But there were all these hoops technically in the first century that people were jumping through. Well, well, it means this, but it doesn't mean this. It, really what the guy's asking is, who isn't my neighbor? That's the question. Just draw the circle for me. If I know who isn't, then I know who's in. Back in the day, they, were, they would teach this, love your neighbor. You could love your neighbor, but, but it is a righteous thing to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Those that aren't like you, different from you. Love, love your neighbor. Love your own. Hate your enemy. spirit of the day in the first century. It's 
hasn't changed much in the 21st century. Jesus will come on and say, no, I say love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How far does this deal extend? Who's your neighbor? Jesus says it knows no bounds. There is no minimum. It's absolutely all completely maximum. Everybody is your neighbor. Anyone that comes across your path. So here's the parable. This is how he answers him. He says a guy goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's a 17-mile walk or ride. This is what it would have been. Mostly downhill, and it would have been a very rugged terrain. It would have been rocky. And uh, Jericho was the, was the um, so Jerusalem was where the temple was, but Jericho was where Herod had a temple and a whole bunch. Of, it was a very, it was a place of luxury. People would go from Jerusalem to Jericho to, to take a weekend off, you know? To, to just get away from everything. But if you were a robber or a thief or maybe even a terrorist, um, you would know that, hey, listen, people were headed to Jericho and they had money to spend. They'd hide in the rocks. It was noted that you wouldn't, shouldn't travel alone there. You were just asking for it. So Jesus tells about a man who goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. And crisis Uh, the crisis the man finds himself in. So he's come upon by some robbers. He's stripped. There's no identifiable clothing left on him, it appears. He's robbed. They take everything he has. There's no way to know exactly what the man's stock was. Was he rich? Was he poor? What, What kind of a guy was he? And they leave him half dead. They leave him for dead. Which means he couldn't talk. You couldn't hear his accent. You didn't know what language he spoke. Was he from the north or from the south? Or was he a foreigner? Who was this guy? Well, presumably he's a Jew in the story, and so the priest happens to come along. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho as well. He's probably traveled that road many times, and the priest comes, and he sees the man, and it says he goes to the other side of the road. He sees him and goes to the other side of the road. Here's a priest, one who's God's servant, who ministers in his temple and represents the height of what piety is supposed to be. You, you want to know what it looks like? Looks like that. Looks like that priest. And yet the priest does nothing. Maybe, look, maybe he didn't want to become unclean from touching a corpse. Maybe he hesitated to help somebody because they might be a sinner. I mean, you just never know. Maybe he was afraid that he might get robbed as well if he stopped. But you know what? The the text doesn't actually give us an excuse. It doesn't really need to. So not only a priest, but then a Levite comes. This was a member of the tribe of Levi, not one of Aaron's line, not one of Aaron's family specifically. So he's responsible. He's, He's kind of the He's kind of the uh, helper. He, he does the less important task. He's like a priest's assistant, and probably he doesn't stop. He goes, he sees the guy, goes to the other side of the road, and maybe probably for all the same reasons as the priest, although we're not given a reason. 
But what we do know is that Jesus is giving us an example of two people, two people who represent the most religious, the, the, the righteous, the, the law keepers, and he's showing their inability to keep the law. The law is not the answer in this situation. Uh, obedience can't give you a heart. Well, I mean, when you're alone and no one's around and no one will know, it doesn't give you a heart to, to compassionately give your life away. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, when there's no stage around. The law can instruct you what to do, but it cannot change you. It can only reveal who you really are. This is what Jesus is doing. He's revealing this man. So then it comes upon this guy who's a Samaritan. A Samaritan would have been a half-breed. It was a man who would have been by every Jewish standard considered unclean, the lowest of the low. What happened was, it's their part of the northern, what happened to the northern kingdom, Israel, and you find out in the Old Testament that Assyria, a nation, comes in 722 B.C., and they occupy the land. They come, they conquered the land, they, they overthrow this Israel. They've had 20 bad kings in a row, and God says, okay, Assyria can have you. And so they Syria, likely with their strategy would have been, they would have gone in, they would have taken all the healthy males out. They would have brought them back to Assyria. They would have had them work, become slaves, uh, force them into the army. But they would have left all the, the weak men, all the, a lot of the women, many of the children. And Assyria's strategy wasn't to completely wipe you out by killing you. It was to um, get rid of you in assimilation, to marry with you, to dilute your bloodline. So that's what had happened. Samaria became a half-breed people. They were impure. They were the object of Jewish prejudice. In fact, the disciples, just a chapter before this, in chapter 9, Jesus goes to Samaria. He's going to do some ministry. And he's rejected by the people in Samaria. And so the disciples, they, I mean, they, they, they figured, I mean, you're rejected in Samaria, and then they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You want us to do that? <laughs> Jesus, so patient. What ha would have been funnier would have been, huh, you can bring fire from heaven, huh? Sure, go ahead and do that. Let's see it. Hang on, let me, uh, let me get my phone out. I'm going to put this on YouTube. He doesn't. He rebukes them. No. In John chapter 4, you see Jesus who makes his way uh, as he journeys, and it says that he must go through Samaria. Goes and encounters a Samaritan woman who would have been lowest of low at a well in the middle of the day in the midst of her hiding from even her people. She's like, the, she's like the lowest amongst the low. Jesus has a conversation with her, invites her into the truth. She's so ecstatic. He reveals everything about her, all her sin, all her shame, nothing left to hide. She runs back into the village and says, you've got to come see this man who told me everything I ever did. The Samaritan's actions does a series of things. One, he comes up to him, sees him, 
comes up to him, and then he binds his wounds. Might have involved, I mean, you probably wasn't carrying a first aid kit. He may have had to rip some of his own clothes to make bandages or use his, his head cloth or He's bandaging the man's wounds, and he anoints the, the cuts on him with oil and wine. He cleans the blood off, and then he, then, he, then he soothes the wound and uses the wine to disinfect it. And he may have even, it may have been his only provisions. Like, this is all I got for that. I only brought, I mean, I only brought this little bit. Or, or... He uses what he had. In the Jewish circles, this lawyer would have heard this to receive oil or wine from a Samaritan. It wasn't even allowed. Then what he does is he puts the man on his mule. It means that then the Samaritan, he walked the rest of the way. And then he takes him to an inn so he can be provided for and cared for and comforted to, to a man he just met. had nothing to offer him. He doesn't dump him and run. It says he stays the night to care for him. Innkeepers, he would have, wouldn't have been invested at all in that. So the man stays, makes sure that he cares for him, makes sure that he makes it through the night. And then he pays the man out of his own pocket and, and uh, then tells him, hey, listen, you keep this man here as long as he needs to be here. If he incurs any other expenses, I'll come pay. Don't let him pay for it. I'm paying for this. As a neighbor of the Samaritan did everything he could do. His compassionate act, as compassion often does, involved a concrete price the Samaritan was willing to pay. And then Jesus says to him, so who's the neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor? Remember the man asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus turns it around and says, who is a neighbor? Well, it's the one who's compassionate. It's the one who shows mercy. Which, by the way, that word is used to describe Jesus in the Gospels more than any other word. Merciful. Compassionate. So Jesus says to him, okay, you go and do likewise. So let's answer the question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What does this story tell me? Well, I'd say this. The story is not a story about how to be a Christian. It's not. The, the message of the story isn't go and love your neighbor and, and be better at loving and be more compassionate, and then you're in. It, it, it's not saying, okay, look, here's basic Christianity. Make sure that you're like the Samaritan. Because to answer the other man's question, you cannot justify yourself. Listen, to be clear, Jesus does want us to follow Him in this example. He does want us to be like this. Jesus does want to give us a picture of what it looks like to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus wants to give us a glimpse of what we were built for, what we were made for, what it means to be created in the image of God. He, he means everything in that. But it begins not with a to-do list. It 
it begins by putting us to death. It begins with being convicted. It begins by knowing that you can't do this. We aren't loving like this. And if you think you are, you haven't heard the story. See, it begins not with doing something. It begins with something being done. Our hearts must be changed. They've got to be circumcised. It's realizing, look, you're not the guy in the saddle. You're the guy bleeding on the side of the road. You aren't the Savior. You're the saved. You're the rescued. You see, when you're rescued, you have different eyes. You you have a different heart. You have a different capacity for joy. Obligation's been replaced with sincerity and joy and thankfulness. You're not seeking to earn anything. You're not looking for an ovation. Life is now lived out of this deep gratitude, not insecurity, not, not anxiety, but a deep gratitude. See, there's three some wonderful things about grace in here. There's three of them. First, God, God's grace in Jesus comes to the center wherever He is. Wherever you are, His grace comes to you. We don't have to ascend to heaven. We don't have to bring Christ down. He's here. He seeks. He seeks to save. He came all the way. The sinner doesn't even have to to get up on his elbow. Doesn't he, even he lift his eyes to heaven. Jesus comes. Listen, he's going to come. He comes right to the self-righteous Pharisee wherever you are. In the, maybe you're in the pew. Comes right there in the chair. The same he comes to the guy who's strung out, and drunk on the street, compassionately, tenderly bends over to where you are no matter what the mire looks like. Second, God's grace in Jesus comes and brings salvation to the sinner. Not only does He come to where you are, but He comes and He brings salvation. To believe that He seeks you. To believe that He's paid the price to believe that He has done all, that he, he not only desires to rescue you, He can rescue you, and He's the only one that can rescue you. And He desires to impart eternal life, presence with God. Jesus is the good Samaritan the great Samaritan. And he keeps those who he saves. Sets them on their own, on his own beast. Takes them all the way home. Just like as the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd takes him up and puts him over on his shoulders. So does God's grace in Jesus find us and carry us and take us all the way home. 
like the Samaritan. He's, he's paid everything that needed to be paid. Provided all the care and compassion that you needed. He doesn't look the other way. He doesn't go to the other side of the road. He comes to you where you are. And until you know His love, you'll never know how to love. Do you know His love? Do, do you know it? Or are you acting a part? Trying to be something that inside you know that you are not. It is not about you being more of anything. Is it about, it's about you seeing all of Him. And when you do that, your heart's changed. You're changed. You don't have to put on a mask and act anymore. You are. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we, we do ask.